Let's open together in our Bibles back to the Gospel of Mark before our communion service together. Mark chapter 7 is where we'll be. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark together as a congregation in our morning services. We find our way now to chapter 7. In a moment, we'll be reading beginning in verse 24 to verse 30. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24 and making our way down to verse 30. I realize even as we go through the Gospel of Mark, as compared to maybe some of the epistles we've gone through together, these are longer chapters. So you're saying, wow, there's 30 verses and they're still not done. Yeah, there's more verses to cover even next week. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, it says, And from thence he arose, and went unto the borders of Tyre and Sidon, and entered into an house, and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell at his feet. The woman woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. And Jesus said unto her, Let the children be first filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs." And he said unto her, For this saying, go thy way. The devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out, and her daughter laid upon the bed. This is an interesting passage in many regards. But here we we have a, a lady, an unnamed lady, who demonstrates something that stands in stark contrast to what we read in the earlier verses right before that. In Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23, we we see Jesus addressing the coming religious elite of Israel. These are the, the scribes and the Pharisees. These are those who, while you were alive at that time, if you had a question about the law of God around the area, you would have gone to this particular group. But here, in verses 24 through 30, Jesus addresses the coming of this unnamed woman who is from a different part even than the religious elite are from. And we would have assumed, before we even read it, just based on those two headings, that of the two that would demonstrate the greatest amount of faith and the best knowledge of who God is, it would have been the first and not the later. And yet, here are those spiritual leaders who are not demonstrating great faith, but instead they are demonstrating great unbelief. In fact, you could say they demonstrate hypocrisy and superficiality and duplicity and insincerity. And that's what we learn in the first half of this chapter. The the mighty religious leaders of Israel who paraded in self-righteousness have no true faith. But from this woman, this unnamed, unknown, Syrophoenician, Gentile woman, now from her, of all people, we learn what great faith looks like and how much like God this account is to teach us strength from the very weakest among us, to teach us how to wrestle with God from the one who is furthest away from God. And we see here a a clear demonstration which stands in stark contrast to the other group of what great faith looks like. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, said this in his sermon on this text. Our Lord, he says, quote, had a quick eye for spying faith. The Lord Jesus was charmed 
with the fair jewel of this woman's faith. In watching it and delighting in it, our Lord resolved to turn it around and set it in other lights that the various facets of this various priceless diamond, referring to her faith, might flash in its brilliance and delight his own soul. End quote. It would do well for us this morning to consider the strong faith that arose from this seemingly weak, unnamed, unknown woman in the Bible. I've thought about for some time to do a series of the unnamed heroes of the Bible, and there are a lot of them. This is certainly one of them. And I believe this incident ought to be a great encouragement to everyone in this room because all of us, in one way or the other, certainly are weak in our faith. Yet we see in this woman someone who steps out of the shadows and exhibits a faith that even causes Jesus Christ to delight in. And we see that you too can have that great faith. Now, As we begin to look at this passage, I want to note by way of context how tactical is our Lord. He is seemingly always on the move. Once he began his earthly ministry, his public earthly ministry, he is seemingly always on the move from one place to the other. It says in verse 24, And he arose, and he went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon. Now Matthew's gospel is helpful for us to gain some context, because Matthew's gospel, when referring to these steps of Jesus, says in Matthew 15, verse 21, that Jesus went away, and it says it uses the word, he withdrew from the regions of Tyre, to the regions of Tyre and Sidon. And so what Jesus is doing is he is withdrawing. This is often referred to as his withdrawal period of his ministry. Now there is strategy and purpose to this withdrawal. He is pulling away from the pressures of the multitudes. We have seen the multitudes swarming to him in Mark's gospel's account. And I, I won't take time to trace that in full, but you will see that these crowds are now multiplying, not just adding, and they are huge and in the last several chapters of Mark's gospel, how many times have we read that Jesus is getting into a boat to cross from one side to the other and then back again, always moving, and every time he comes to another shoreline, there's another huge crowd. And every time he crosses from one huge crowd to another huge crowd, they just keep growing. And each time Jesus moves in those boats, he is getting away from the crowds. But each time, an even larger crowd is seen. But there's a problem now that is brewing because of the popularity of our Lord. Rest has evaded him at every turn. And here we see it yet one more time, but I believe Jesus is chiefly withdrawing himself, not because of the growing crowds or the rest that he needed, but at this point he is withdrawing because of the growing hostility of the religious leaders. This now becomes a rare moment in the life of our Lord. It is not yet his time to be crucified. That will come. But if he had stayed, this religious group that he has just showed how wrong they were, they are becoming more and more angry with him. And so he withdraws. And Jesus, in a rare moment in his ministry, withdraws and he leaves the Israel proper borders. And he moves now, our text says, and it's worth noting, to Tyre and Sidon. So he's withdrawing, actually, away outside of the national borders of Israel. He is going somewhere else. Isn't that interesting? Now, Tyre is all the way to the west of the Mediterranean seacoast. It is in the Phoenician area, which is modern-day Lebanon. 
It is only 40 miles north and west to Tyre, which is distinctly a Gentile territory. And so as Jesus makes his journey, he intentionally leaves Israel and he goes to Tyre, which is a very famous place at that point and may not be to you at this point. So let me tell you why it was famous. It was in Tyre that the king of Tyre made an allegiance and formed an allegiance. We learn about that allegiance with David and Solomon at one point. It was at Tyre that Tyre furnished the timber and gave the skilled artisans to Israel for the building of their temple. And so there's kind of a relationship there. But it was at Tyre that the introduction of Baal worship came into Israel. So this group is a conflicted group. You can see that even in their history. At one hand, they have given things to the temple, even people to help with the temple. But on the other hand, this is the place from which Baal worship finds its origins that leak themselves down into Israel. Now this is where Jesus is going. He's going to this conflicted area. And as he's moving there, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, actually, in those movements. In Psalm 87, verse 4, it prophesied that the blessings of Messiah would actually extend to the people of Tyre. Psalm 87, verse 4, it says, I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to them that know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre, which is Ethiopia, this man was born there. The Messiah will go even there. And so as he's moving, he's fulfilling prophecy. But know what it says at the end of verse 24. And he entered into a house, do you see what he says here? And would have no man know it. Now this gives us some insight into his purposes. From a human perspective, Jesus is trying to find a place so he and his disciples can get some much-needed R&R. He is still fully God, but he is also fully human, and so there's a tiredness here. But this is because there's a crescendo in his ministry, and there's an intensity in the last few weeks. But even as he goes there, we know the intensity is so growing and so swelling that while that may be his intention, that is not at all what happens. But he could not be hid. That is to say, his fame has preceded him outside of Israel. He is leaving Israel, he is in Tyre, and he can't even be hid in Tyre. It was impossible for Jesus to be incognito at this point. Which is stunning to think about in light of the fact that this is pre-cell phones, this is pre-television, this is pre-newspapers. And he is, his fame has spread so far that he even leaves national Israel and he still can't be hid. And it's in the midst of this withdrawal period into this conflicted area outside of Israel that of all the places we find this stunningly great faith. And in light of all of that context, you would not expect to find it there. Like this is when he's tired This is an area outside of Israel. This is an area famous even for bringing Baal worship into Israel. These are not where the religious leaders themselves would ever go in. And yet, of all the places in his ministry to find great faith, he finds it in Tyre. And in Tyre, we are struck with the great faith of this unnamed, unknown, Gentile, Syrophoenician woman And she notices through our study of her that, number one, great faith is focused. You get the impression that this lady has already been thinking about Jesus before he comes. Notice what the text says, verse 24. For a certain woman, 
whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him. Everyone had heard of him. It's only 40 miles away to get to Tyre. The miracles Jesus was performing, the truth that he was expounding, the stir of his ministry had reached them 40 miles away. Everyone had heard about him. And so after hearing about Jesus, we hear what she does. A certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and she came and fell at his feet. And we find is she is focused right there on Christ because there needs to be a focused dependency in our faith. This unnamed woman has an extraordinary need in her life that is crushing down upon her. And she cannot bear her responsibility. She cannot bear this trauma any longer. She now comes to the Lord because she has a need that she can't get over. Her daughter is filled with a demon possession. She has an unclean spirit. And as this woman comes, she has no doubt, because she is a pagan, been a worshiper of pagan gods. She's been a worshiper of pagan idols. If she herself has not been a worshiper of those, she's certainly familiar with the practice. It is right to assume that this has been things that have been passed down to her. There have been all kinds of ideas around how she can help her daughter. It is right for us to even assume, given her location and her context, that she has exhausted all of those means. Given her background, we can understand that she has really tried. And now she comes in desperation, in complete dependency, recognizing everything else in this world won't fix my problems. And the best place to be is always at the feet of Jesus. Better to be at the feet of Jesus than standing anywhere else. And as she comes, no doubt she is collapsed at his feet with great anxiety, total dependency on the only one who can heal. Friend, I don't know what burden you carry, but I'll tell you where you can carry it. Depend completely on Jesus, who will heal, who will help, who will save. This is great faith. But this great faith is not only completely dependent, there needs to be a focus of dependency, but there needs to be a focused humility. There is even more reflected than just falling at his feet. We see something of her humility. Life and its trials certainly have a way of humbling us, don't they? Trials can be crushing, they can be, make us look down, but rather cr- trials often can cause us to be so far down that there's no other place than to look up. And trials are a good when they humble us before the Lord. Perhaps you've been there in a trial and you've said, this is out of my control. In the middle of my trial, you say, this is out of my hands, there is nothing I can do. And that is meant to cause you to say, I need God. And God so often in our trials pulls the rug out of underneath of us so that we may fall flat on our feet at Jesus. And notice that this woman comes and she falls at his feet. This is a sign of reverence. It's a sign of submissiveness. But more than that, it's a sign of helplessness. It's a sign of hopelessness at this point. We read a bit of a background about this woman in verse 26, and I believe this is given to show the contrast about her who actually strikes gold with the Lord and the religious leaders who only have wood, hay, and stubble. (laughs) And it says in verse 26, the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician woman by nation. This verse really highlights what an unlikely candidate to connect with the Lord in this way. She is a Greek-speaking, pagan, 
Gentile who has been raised in the Greek culture filled with myths, superstitions, and pagan idolatry. That's who she is. She is a Syrophoenician by nation. What that means is she is a descendant of the old Canaanite people whom God ordered Israel to exterminate in Deuteronomy 7. And you know that they didn't because here she is. (laughs) And yet, this woman who if they had actually followed the command, wouldn't exist, is the one who has great faith. I want to say all of that to us today because whether you're riding high or whether you're riding easy, it's still correct to identify with this woman. Every one of us is a nobody who needs to understand with humility who we really are in in light of true deity. This is God, and there needs to be a humility to come before him with a dependency, and there needs to be a focused persistency. Notice the verb tense of verse 26. In verse 26, it says she besought him. That means she kept asking. In fact, the verb tense indicates that this is nonstop. It's it's not like she asks once. It's not like she falls at his feet, makes her request, and waits for an answer. She besought him. The idea is she is pleading with him non-stop. She will not leave his feet without an answer. This is a desperate woman. There is no more desperate person than a mother with maternal instincts for their child. Her child is sick. She knows her child is sick. A mother with that kind of instinct is going to do everything in her power that she can do to find help for her daughter. That's who this lady is. And that's what this lady is doing. In fact, in Matthew's account, we read, she cried out, Matthew 15, verse 22, saying, have mercy on me, O Lord. This this is a great faith that is beginning to sprout through the top soil. She, She has come, you could say, to the right person, Jesus Christ, She has come on the right basis. She is asking for mercy. She is coming with the right request to cast the demon out of her daughter. She is coming with the right persistence. She won't stop asking. Is there not a lesson in requests for us today? Some will say, man, I I wish God would answer my prayer. Well, when's the last time you came to God with dependency, saying, not my will but yours, with a humility that says, God, you are God, I am not, with a persistency that says, God, I will not leave your side until you give me a peace that passes all understanding. That's great faith. But how many of us have that kind of great faith? The kind of focused faith that won't leave Jesus' feet. Not Jesus' side, but his feet. Number two, great faith is unwavering. I want you to notice the strange reply Because it is strange that Jesus says. It's strange to read verse 27. But read it with me, and then let's pick it apart. Here's what it says. Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled. For it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto dogs. Man. So in light of the focused persistency and humility and dependency of this lady, Jesus calls her a dog? That doesn't seem right. At least at first blush. Our Lord is well and wise, though, and knows exactly what he is doing. And I want to try to explain what he is doing here. Notice this in verse 27. Jesus said unto her, 
And again, the, the verb tense is important because she has besought him. The idea is she is continually asking her, him. And now it says Jesus said unto her, and the verb tense is the same. So the idea is he continually says unto her. So while we may get to pick up the main points of their conversation, the idea is this conversation is going back and forth. And she is continually persistent, and he is continually responding in his mercy. And he says, let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it into dogs. And no doubt, he is looking directly into her eyes when he says this. This is directed to her. This is not directed to the room. And when we take Matthew's parallel account in Matthew 15 from his gospel, a couple things are helpful for us to consider. In Matthew's account, Jesus didn't answer her first. The more she pled, the more our Lord turns a deaf ear to her to give the appearance of being uninterested, even not involved. That's what Matthew 15 says. So she is at his feet, she is pleading, and Matthew 15 indicates that Jesus initially doesn't respond. And in Matthew 15, it even says that the disciples are the ones who spoke up on her behalf. In fact, Matthew 15, verse 23 says, His disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, she cries too much. I mean, you're not responding, so it appears that you don't care. Can you get her out so we can listen to her? And she is loud in their ears, and the Lord is saying nothing, so they want her gone. And in Matthew's account, Jesus gives an interpretational key that's very clear. This is an important note for our understanding of Mark 7, verse 27. By the way, you may, many ask, well, what's the best commentary? <laughs> the answer is always the Bible. The Bible is the best commentary for the Bible. And so here we are confused in Mark 7, verse 27. So what is it exactly he's saying? And there's an interpretative key that's given in Matthew 15, 24 that really unlocks what, we, what at first blush we read in verse 27 that seemed a little bit hard for our, our ears to process. Here's what he says in Matthew 15, 24. I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now we see these children. Mark 7, verse 27 refers to them as children. And the children are the children of God in a national sense. Those born in the line of Abraham. So Jesus says to this Greek-cultured, Gentile, Syrophoenician, non-Jewish woman... I am not sent, but unto the sheep of the house of Israel. I'm, I'm not to the Gentiles yet. I've, I'm just now crossed over the Israelite border. I am sent to the Jewish people. And in Matthew's account, the lady now, after hearing that, that's when she falls down at his feet. And says in verse 25 of Matthew 14, or 15, Lord, help me. This woman wants grace. She will not cease in persistence to get through to the Lord Jesus. And so what Jesus says will now help us unlock Mark's account. There's a picture our Lord is drawing. The picture is drawn of someone's house where there is a mom and a dad and there are children and that they have a dog. But there are two different uses or Greek language for dogs in the Bible. One it's just a mangy, stray, wild dog that roams the street looking for scraps. That's one kind of dog in the Bible. And the other is a word that is used of a house pet, like some of you have. You've got dogs at your home. And the picture Jesus is painting here is that when the family comes to the table, 
The mom begins to distribute the food, and you don't give the food to the family pet first, unless you're kind of weird. And some of you may give the family food. I understand that. (laughs) But normally, if you've got starving children, you give the food to your children first, and whatever is left over is thrown on the floor for the for the family pet. My my parents have a little white dog. My my nephew, for the longest time since he was almost old enough to think about these things, wanted a little white dog, and his name was going to be Clifford. And they we tried to change him. Do you want a black dog? No. Do you want a brown dog? No. It had to be white. Do you want a big dog? Small dog? Medium dog? It had to be small. And does it? Do you want any other name? No. It had to be Clifford. So my parents have a little white dog named Clifford, and when we visit them, when our kids sit down at the dining room table, you know where the dog goes? It goes over to where the kids are, because that's where the food is going to end up on the floor. So what Jesus has in mind is that the gospel will first go to the Israelite nation, and then it will go to the Gentiles. And this is the way Jesus ran his ministry. In fact, when Jesus commissioned his disciples, he sent them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. And there's a strategic planning in the economy of God that the gospel will go first to the house of Israel. In fact, Jesus would give this command. These 12 Jesus sent forth, these are talking about the disciples, and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not. This is not where you're going yet. You are going to the Israelites first. When Jesus ascended back to the throne of his father, he then gives the great commission and there are concentric circles beginning somewhere and then extending beyond those national borders. Look what he says. You will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses both in me first in, did you notice where he's starting? Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then the other most parts of the world. And Paul would reiterate that point the same way when he says this to the Romans in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is God's plan and God's purpose. He is unfolding his ministry. He starts nationally in Israel, and then he unfolds it outside those national borders to those who are Gentiles, of which I don't mind saying I am one, and some of you are as well. And so when Jesus says this to the woman, he says, I don't, I don't give it to the children, I give it to the children first, not to the dogs. There is a big picture of theology our Lord is giving to her. This is the theology of the concentric circles of his ministry. But on a practical level, Jesus is doing what he has often done in other interactions. He is testing her faith. He has done this with the disciples. He has done this with the uh, maniac of Gadara as well. He is probing, he is testing her faith for the purpose of building her faith. Jesus is intentionally putting her off that he may build her up. Jesus is intentionally saying, no, not now, in order to strengthen her commitment to follow him. Or as one country preacher put it this way, the stronger the contrary wind, the higher the kite will rise. The stronger the resistance to faith, if it is rooted and grounded in Christ, the higher will be its upward reach to God. You need proof? Look at Job. The Lord does this with us. You ever prayed for something and not received an answer that split second? I know the answer, because that's how prayer works. Why doesn't God just answer the prayer the moment I ask? Why do I have to keep asking? 
He wants us to build us up in this perseverance, this endurance. God is not indifferent. God is growing your faith. God is concerned about maturing us, even with delayed answers, that our faith would be, secondly, unwavering. I know what God would have me to do. So by the time I've prayed about it and I've wrestled through it and I've I've cried out to the Lord and he gives me an answer, I can have a peace because the stronger the contrary wind, the higher that kite will rise. I wonder, I mean, we just finished the book of Job. You come to the end of the book of Job and you read of a man that is stronger at the end than he was at the beginning, even though at the beginning God himself would testify of Job and say, this man loves me. How incredible it is to know that all of us, while we are weak, can grow in our faith, and one of the ways we grow is through resistance. Is this not the same way how we exercise? If you just sit around all day, you're going to be weak and flat, fat and flabby. That's just the reality of life. But if you get out and have some resistance on your legs, and you go for a walk, and you exercise, you'll find yourself growing stronger and stronger. You'll find yourself able to withstand contrary winds. But finally, number three, great faith is desperate. This now leads us to the remarkably strong faith of the Lord. Matthew tells us she cries out, have mercy upon us. And let's let's explore that desperation as we close, because desperate faith is an obedient faith. Verse 28 says, and she answered him and said unto him, and you might as well circle these words, because these need to be your answer. Yes, Lord, that should be our answer when God is speaking, yes, whatever you say, Lord. And there's, this is a remarkable answer. This is worth putting on your refrigerator. Yes, Lord. Unlike Peter, who had say, may it never be, Lord. Remember Peter said that? I'll never do that. This lady says, yes, Lord. And in saying yes, Lord, she recognizes the supreme authority and sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ who is alone to make the call in our lives. She acknowledges the sovereign master who has the power and authority to decide outcomes. This is far away from name it and claim it as you can get. This is as far away from that as you can get. She's not coming to God and saying, here's my decree, and then you give me what I'm asking for. She is definitely not doing that, is she? I mean, this is a far cry from a prosperity gospel. This is not health and wealth for her. She just wants the Lord's will. Yes, Lord. Do you have that kind of faith? Yes, Lord. Whatever you say, Lord, I will do that, Lord. Is it an obedient faith? And desperate faith, as we noted already, is a humble faith. Now we have this counterplay It's a remarkable comeback. There is much in this last verse in verse 28. Yet the dogs, she says, under the table, eat of the children's crumbs. And she turns the word dog, which is termed somewhat of reproach, unless it's my name, because that's actually what the name Caleb means, if you didn't know that. Everybody has, you know, different names, and sometimes you'd say, well, like the name, you know, whatever, it's really cool. And the name Caleb does mean dog, and sometimes I've seen it cross-stitched that it means bold, which is nice, but it really does mean dog. (laughs) But in a reasoned hope and optimism, she turns that name and she embraces that name. She will not give up. She will not say, I guess it's just not the will of God for my life. What this woman is in essence saying is this, I am willing to be compared to a dog in the Lord's house. I would rather that. I accept that. And what is implied in this comparison is this, yes, Lord, I'm a dog. 
I not only accept that I'm a dog, I rejoice that I'm a dog. I'm glad to be a dog because I'm a dog in your house, which means I have a master and a dwelling place. I'm yours. I'd love to be your dog. I'll take the crumbs off the Lord's table any day over eating off the feasts of this world. I'm willing to take the lowest of the low and the household of God than to be the highest of highs in the kingdoms of this world. If this happened today in America, someone would sue God in a libel suit or something. (laughs) Some equal opportunity person would be bent out of shape about all of this. But this woman says, I am willing to be a dog in the kingdom of heaven than to be the top dog in the world. I'll take the Lord's crumbs any day over gold and silver and precious stones that come out of this world's foul and stinking system. And this is an extraordinary demonstration of faith. The fact is, we are all without Christ. And we are actually far worse than dogs. In fact, James puts it this way, God resists proud people. He gives grace to humble people. A dog is an upgrade over who you actually are. How humble we need to posture ourselves when we come to the throne of grace. Jesus is amazed by the depth of her faith. In fact, this woman is only one of two people that Jesus says had great faith. In fact, in Matthew 15, 28, Jesus uses those words. He says, this lady has great faith faith, and she is only one of two people who get that commendation. She gets it, and the Roman centurion who came to have his sick servant healed also gets that distinction. Nobody in Israel gets that distinction, including his disciples. Jesus has tested her faith with hard words, and her faith has flown and risen to the challenge. Her faith exceeded that of the people he had come to serve. Here was a Gentile who embraced the term dog that had more faith than the Jewish scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, and get this, even, according to Matthew 15, the disciples that were watching this at that time. This is the kind of faith that excites Jesus. Verse 29, it says, And he said unto her, For this saying... Go thy way, the devil has gone out of thy daughter. And I want you to pause and note, it happened then. Like It's not like it was like this uh, progressive, like, okay, you, she's going to be healed, but you give her a little bit of time. No, like, when Jesus said, it happened, it happened. And all she had to do was get there to find out. But it had already happened. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out, because that already happened, and her daughter laid upon the bed. He rewarded her faith by giving exactly what she asked for. He healed her daughter. Her faith was so strong, she didn't ask for proof. Did you notice that? It's not like she's like, oh, well, I don't know. I I haven't seen it yet. No, she knew. And when she arrived home, she found her daughter healed, her family restored. What a blessing. But as I read this, what a challenge. Because you too could have that kind of great faith. The woman had great faith. Her faith was great because it was based on God's truth about Jesus. It was great because it was focused on Jesus. 
It was great because it was desperate to get Jesus' attention on her life. It was a great faith. I don't know what kind of faith you have today. You might have weak faith. You might have strong faith. You might have no faith. The first kind of faith we all need is saving faith. The kind of faith that accepts the truth that we are sinners. We are worse than dogs. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God. And we deserve the punishment for our sin. We deserve that. But we can receive forgiveness of our sins and eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's grace unmeasured. The church needs this Gentile woman's example in an era characterized by a lack of genuine faith. Many claim to know much about doctrine. Many would be able to divide and distinguish between doctrinal distinctions and barriers and the like. But when it comes down to really having faith, an intellectual affirmation of doctrine is not faith. Genuine faith brings men and women to realize they're dogs who need scraps from the Lord's table. Genuine faith opens our eyes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all creation. Genuine faith provides courage and hope to men and women that they can run to the Lord who is there to listen to their requests. After all, our series has been titled, and it's been crossed out, because it's not my story, is it? It's his story. If I would embrace his story, I would have great faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Or we have an example from this lady in Mark chapter 7 who gives us what it looks like to have great faith. And it's interesting, Lord, to study in light of the example of, we could say, bad faith or false faith that has been typified by the religious leaders of that day. Lord, there may be some in this room who have never accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, may today be the day of their salvation. May they have that first saving faith that, God, you would save them from their sins, that they would trust in you alone. Lord, there may be others in this room that may be going through various things, but they need to recognize their own need to have a complete and total dependency on you. May even as this invitation is given, 